just thank you for this day. We thank you for this evening and all those who have braved the weather to get here. And we thank you. We ask you to bless this time. Anointed, show us what you'd have us to learn from this. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Samuel chapter 11. Now, we last chapter, we talked about the battle with the Ammonites where they hired the Syrians. And the Syrians were beat and the Ammonites retreated back into their into their city and they never really got punished and it and chapter 11 starts at that lo, at that time verse 1 and it came to pass after the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rehoboth but David tarried still at Jerusalem and it came to pass at in an evening tide that David went, arose from off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is, is not this Bathsheba, the son of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took, took her, and she came in to, unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived, and sent and told David, and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah unto David. We're going to stop there. <laughs> We're going to look at this. It says in verse 1, And it came to pass, after the end of the year was expired, at a time when kings go forth to war. This is a nice way to say it's springtime. <laughs> All right. It, it says at the end of the year, or when the year had expired, uh, in the Jewish calendar, the first year is the year of uh, the month of Nisan, and that is roughly April, March, April, uh, depending on how the how the uh, month formats. That's the beginning. That's the first month of the Jewish year. Uh, if you go back into Exodus, when God delivered the people and gave them gave him the Ten Commandments. He said, this is the new year at Passover. He says, this is the first month of the, of the year from this time forward. So Nisan or April becomes the first, first month. Um, the Jewish calendar has 13 four-month, uh, 12 four-week-long uh, four uh, months. And then every once in a while, they will add a leap month in there. So they'll add an extra entire month and it's between every five to seven years uh, and why they do that is because the Jewish holidays are fixed to the moon and to the seasons I don't know they, they, they will have a they will have a probably a civil calendar that matches the rest of the world but they'll have a religious calendar that will have the 13 months at, at least once they get established again uh, but they've always done that since God put their calendar in and what they will do is when the month starts getting, when the season starts getting way out of line for the month of Nisan, they'll go, okay, now we've got to add another month in, and all of a sudden they bring it back in. And that's why what we celebrate as Easter does not always pa uh, match up to Passover like it should. Because Jesus died as the Passover lamb and resurrected on first fruits. So he, it should always be the Sunday after Passover should be the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, which is this 
Jewish celebration of first fruits. And the way they keep their calendar in line is with this extra 28 days. Just a history lesson on, on Jewish calendars. So it says, the years passed. It's the time for the kings to go to battle. And in springtime, made a good time for them to go to battle. The winter's over. The rainy season's over. The planting is over. The seeds aren't, the fields aren't muddy. They're able to march and get around. So this is a great time to decide to go to battle. And remember, most of the kings did not have professional soldiers. They just called the, called the men, and all the men would leave their fields. And after they had plowed their fields and planted their fields, it was a great time for them to, go to be able to go out to battle because they had several, several months before they were going to be able to harvest their, their crops. So springtime was the time they would go out to battle. But we note here that David sent Joab and the army out to battle. And he stays, and note that it says, at the time when kings go forth to war, David should have been with his men. If David had gone where he was supposed to have been, the whole affair with Bathsheba would never have happened, or at least would not have happened at that particular time. All right? So we end up here, David is at the wrong, time, uh, wrong place, he has not gone where he's supposed to be as king, and consequences happen. And that's true for all of us. When we're at the wrong place at the wrong time, there will usually be consequences for our actions. And David's going to have major consequences for his action. And it says in the second half of that, that Joab and the servants with him and all of Israel went out and they destroyed the children of Ammon. This is a pretty strong statement. Before they went out to battle with Ammon, Ammon retreated to the to their city and then they, they destroyed Syria. This time it says they destroyed it and they besieged Raboth which is the capital of Ammon. So they are outside there. David is still in Jerusalem. So he's missing the victory and this is not something that happened very often. When kings were go send out to war they wanted to be the one that led the army to a victory. Because when Joab comes back, he's going to be able to say, look at what I did if he wanted to. I was the victorious general. I don't know where David was. He was not there, but we were victorious. And you remember how jealous Saul got. Saul is, uh, killed his thousands and David is ten thousands. David is sitting at home, lounging around. Not the place to, not the place to be when his army is out at war. And he's not old yet. Later on in his time, they're going to say, David, you're, too, you're getting too old, you're getting too slow, and you're too precious to the people. You stay at home. All right? And that would be a different thing. David, you're, 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 you're venerable. Don't, don't go out to war. You've already got your, you've proven who you are. You don't need to go out to war. And as a matter of fact, David, we don't want you going to war because somebody's going to take, some young man's going to take your head off. Uh, but that's not where he's at at this point. And then it says, And it came to pass at evening tide that David arose off his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house. I read that and going, what the heck is David doing in bed in the middle of the afternoon? It would be one thing at noon, you know, taking a siesta during the heat of the day maybe, but this is coming on to evening time, and David finally gets up and walks around. Meanwhile, his army is in battle, destroying the Ammonites and besieging the capital of the Ammonites. And he walks around on the roof, 
and looks down and sees a woman washing herself and the comment is she was very beautiful to look at. Uh, now there was nothing wrong with Bathsheba taking her bath on the roof. That is where people took their baths usually. They went up to the roof and would get the water ready. Uh, David being the king has just a little larger house and is able to look down on her roof. And there have been people that preach that she was trying to be there and do the wrong thing. I don't buy that she was there doing the wrong thing. She was there just taking a bath. David being in the wrong place saw her and the seeing her wasn't the problem. It was that second, third, fourth look that he probably took to say, wow, she is really beautiful. Uh, because he even then goes and he inquires and says, who is this person? Who is that woman down there? And he is told that she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite is listed in Chronicles as one of the mighty men of David. All right? This is a famous soldier in David's army. He is not just a general army man. He is just not a, you know, everyday smo. This is a guy that David knows and respects and has, and has been and gained glory as a soldier. And he knows that she's a wife. She is also the daughter of Eliam. And you all probably don't know who Eliam is, but Eliam is the son of Ahithophel. Ahithophel is a counselor for David. All right? So this is, this is his granddaughter. Married to one of his good friend soldier, you know, good friends and soldiers in his army, and he's going to take his wife. We're going to find Ahithophel is also going to join Absalom when Absalom rebels against David. And many people draw the conclusion that he joined Absalom because of what David had done to his granddaughter and his grandson-in-law so that he held a grudge against David. And I would buy that. You know, you slept with my granddaughter, you killed her husband, David, I'm going to, you know, lead this, lead, uh, you know, be a good counselor. And he was one of David's chief counselors. And we're going to read later on that it was said that when he gave counsel, every, it, we almost, we, we, when you hear what he said, it's almost like you know, the old slogan, when E.F. Hudden speaks, everyone listens. Remember those old commercials? When Ahithophel spoke, Everybody listened. He was that wise. He was that good a counselor. Ahithophel. See, I was just really on this story about David. I really never thought he would do this. Yeah. He's, he's not supposed to. He's not supposed to do this, but being in the wrong place at the wrong time and thinking that, he, thinking that he's above the law, uh, you know, who knows what it was that brought him to this point. And this is what I say. He, well, he's human. He's human, he's not walking with God because he's not where he's supposed to be. And it's the same thing that I say about these pastors who fall into adultery with, with people in their church. Most of them have never, were not ever planning to go out and commit adultery. They love their wives, they, they, but the right time, the right opportunity, and being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and the right opportunity, and having just the bad, bad spot in their marriage, and, or just thinking they're better, you know, I, I am so good, I deserve this, or whatever. 
and, or I can get away with it, and then all of a sudden, they're there, and that's where David's at. Wrong place, wrong time, thinking he can get away with it. And, and so David finds out who she is. That should have stopped him. All right? First thing is, like I say, David's a righteous man. He should have stopped with the look. And said, oh, I've got to walk away from this. Don't be tempted. All right? Then he goes further in that, in that lustful area and says, who is this? And they go, well, you know, David, it's a, uh, Uriah's wife. And gives enough of her history to know for David to realize she's also the granddaughter of Ahithophel. That should have stopped him. He is still not stopped, and he sends for her in verse 4. And David sent a messenger and took her, or fet, it literally is fetched. At this, this point, it's not the, 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 the sexual connotation. At this time, he says, bring her here. Even at this point, Bathsheba is not wrong for going to David. The king has called her. You know, you're not going to say no to him at that point. You know, because who knows why, you know, her husband's Uriah. Maybe he's got bad news for her from the front you know, about Uriah. Maybe he just wants to know something. But she doesn't know why she's being called, I don't think. There's nothing in there to tell us that she understood why she was being called to David. So she comes. So here's David's third point. He should have stopped. Should have stopped looking. Should have stopped when he found out that it was Uriah's wife. Should have not have called her to, to his bedchamber. And that's enough to probably set red flags to Bathsheba. You know, the king has taken me to his bedchamber instead of the throne room or the dining hall or wherever, the more public place. So she should have a red flag at this point. Well, when he's wrong, he's wrong. There's, there's a point where you do what's right. I'm not going to totally excuse her on this. I do understand, yes, the king is saying, lay with me. You know, well, she I know, doesn't say that he said or else, but, you know, uh, theoretically, she still should have said no. She knows the law as much as anybody else does. So, and she knows it's wrong. So I'm not totally excusing her. Yes, there's that pressure of the king has asked me to do this. But there's still, wrong is wrong no matter who's asking you to do it. Uh, yeah, and David's a good-looking man and very, very well-respected, and he's... And he's king. And then it says, she came to him and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house. So he slept with her. And there's a key statement in here, for she was purified from her uncleanliness. She had just passed her menstruation period, which is a most fertile time for the woman to be being laid with. So David had the wrong time to be laying with her. All right? Uh, she's at her most fertile position <laughs> to have a child. And he lays with her. So now he has violated three levels and has talked, to, talked her into sleeping her with him. And I don't know how big a deal that was to talk her into it. I would hope that it was, I want to sleep with you. And she, I would hope that she initially said no. But we don't know. None of that conversation's there. We don't know how willing she was to participate. It is nothing in here indicating that it was a rape. You know, she very clearly desired, desired him as much as she, he desired her and was willing and was not willing to say no. Uh, 
This purification, in case you wanted to know, was from Leviticus 18 and 19 that talked about the woman needing to purify herself after, after her period. Then she went home and it says she conceived. There's nothing here. I don't know how long it took for her to know that she had conceived. Probably at least, at least another a couple weeks, uh, three to four weeks to get to the next period that didn't come along. Um, because there's no way to know other than that at, the, that, at that earliest stage. Uh, so about three or four weeks later, she sends David a message saying, uh, I'm with child. David now is panicked. All right? The bad news is David's still in his city while his army is besieging this, uh, this town. All right? David is still where he's not supposed to be. And he gets this message of, I have a child. And David is now looking at, this, this pregnancy is at least a month old at this point. He's realizing that Uriah is going to realize that, that, that he was at war when this child was conceived. He also understands the law. The law for adultery is death for the man and the woman. David is subject to death. Bathsheba is subject to death. Even though he's king, the law applies to him. And so this is a big deal to David. He is facing a death sentence, and he's not the one that issues that death sentence. It comes from the priest and God. So he is in a very precarious place at the moment. Oh, there's lots of people that know this. I mean... Uh, he, had, he had a servant that he asked him about. He had at least one. And if you know that it says he sent messengers to go get her. So there's at least two people that were sent to go get her. She had to pass all through the, all through the palace. And I'm not sure that they didn't use back ways, but there's still going to be people they pass that are using the back ways. This is not an ultimate secret. There are people who know what David has done. There's people that know what Bathsheba has done. She did not yell, she did not scream, so she cannot later on claim rape because the law says that if she doesn't yell, if the woman doesn't yell when they're in town, then they are guilty. If they were in the, in the, in the countryside and they didn't, it didn't matter because they're going, even if she had yelled, nobody would have been, nobody might have heard her, but if they're in a town or a city and they didn't yell, they are guilty, even if it was rape. How many, how many people sleep with their friends' wives? <laughs> you know, if you're not careful, that happens a lot. But you know, you're right. David's supposed to be the righteous man. He's our great, great king. This is a moment of weakness. I'm not judging him for it. He was where he wasn't supposed to be, doing what he wasn't supposed to be doing, and not stopping at any of the checkpoints that should have kept him from doing this. And even when she said, I'm with child, the next thing he should have done was gone to the temple offered sacrifices and confessed to God and repented. That's not his course of action. Because that's not where he is spiritually at the moment. And this is the problem we face. Most of the time when we make a grievous sin, not just some you know, small lie or gossip or anything, but when we make a grievous sin, we are usually not in the right place with God. 
We have not been reading our Bible consistently. We have not been praying. We have not been going to church. If David's not at war like he's supposed to be, he probably hasn't been at the temple like he's supposed to be. This is the month of Nisan. He's supposed to be getting ready for Passover. And I don't believe he went to Passover by the, by the way this is written. So we have all kinds of red flags here that David's in a bad place. And we need to always be careful. If we find ourselves sliding away from reading the word, we find ourselves sliding away from prayer, we are probably going to catch ourselves in some fairly significant sin. Maybe not as bad as David's. But we're going to find ourselves doing something that we're going to go, I don't want anybody in church to know, so I'm going to stay away from church. David's going to stay away from church after this event. All right? David is in a bad place. He's not following God very strongly. So David is in his bad place in verse uh, 5. He found out that Bathsheba's with a child. He realizes that Uriah can count. <laughs> okay? Uh, he's been in battle for a month or more. A month or more. He knows he's not coming back for several months. And if, you, if Bathsheba's uh, beginning to show when he gets back, he's going to realize it's not my it's not my baby uh, you know he was not stupid <laughs> so David comes up with his wonderful plan verse 6 and David sent to Joab saying send to me Uriah the Hittite and Joab sent Uriah to David and when Uriah was coming to him David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered and David said to Uriah, Come down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there, and there followed him a mess of meat from the, from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and went not down to his house. And, they, and when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down to his house, David said unto Uriah, Came you not from this journey? Why, why then did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and the Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped upon the fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife as, as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. All right, David's great plan. Get Uriah back home. <laughs> you know, get, get Uriah back home. He'll, sleep with, you know, he'll spend the night with his wife. He'll think it's his child. Didn't go over very well. But we want to look at this, verse 6. And David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah unto David. This in and of itself is a very strange thing. There are messengers that bring news back and forth from the front. Uriah is a key soldier. He is not a messenger. The messengers would be usually younger lads or very older lads, but usually younger because they could run faster. You're not going to call for a warrior. I kind of think that Uriah thinks something strange here. Why am I going back to Jerusalem? Well, not, not, he doesn't have rumors at this point. He might when he gets home, but at this point he has no rumors. But it is strange. I'm, a sol I'm the soldier. I'm not, I'm not a messenger. You know, now he could be saying, well, you know, David's known me for a long time. Maybe, maybe there's some reason he wants to talk to me. He might even be thinking something's wrong with my wife, something's wrong at home. All right? Now, it's not what he's expecting to be wrong at home, but you don't understand what I'm saying. David, 
he knows David and it may be something's happened to my family, you know, and that's why I'm being called. Uh, that's all speculation. I, I'm, I'm guessing, but you know, he's got to think something strange about this. He's not the messenger. He's a soldier, all right? And he's a valued soldier. He's one of the valiant so soldiers out there. He's, he's made a reputation for himself. To be called away from the front lines has got to put something on his mind. And he's going back home probably thinking something's wrong at home. It's just not what he thinks is wrong at home. And then he gets there and David, it says, he demands of him or it literally should be he inquired of him. You know, how, how is Joab and how, how are the people doing and how is the war going? Again, Uriah's got to think this is strange. Uriah, uh, Joab is sending daily reports or twice daily reports. How often they, they send reports. The military would always send reports back, back to the headquarters. And Uriah still got to be thinking, why am I being called here to give a report for the war? And all of this has to be making, Joab, uh, making uh, Uriah think twice. Joab's probably trying to figure out at this point what's going on. David, why are you taking one of my better soldiers away from the front? All right, there's nothing in here yet that Joab knows what's going on. And so David says, all right, Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. What he's telling him is go home and go into your house. You washed your feet to go into your house because you wore sandals. You, your feet were washed. So he's saying, go on into your home. Enjoy, enjoy your home. And it says that enjoy, Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. So he sent him a huge meal. All right? He's wanting, jo he's wanting Uriah to be very relaxed. I would guess that there was probably alcohol included in this mess of, this mess of food going to, to Uriah's house trying to get him relaxed and wanting to have a good night with his wife. And it says Uriah slept out at the king's door. Now, we look at this as well, because in the next verse it says, and when they were, uh, the servants, uh, with all the servants, and went down not to his house, and when they had told David not only has David asked a servant what's going on, he's taught, brought, used at least two servants to bring Bathsheba here. Now he's having servants following Uriah to tell him what Uriah is doing. All right, I want you to tell me that he went home. I want to know when he got home and enjoyed this feast. And probably they were supposed to watch him to see if they even went to the bedroom. I mean, I don't think they were watching him in the bedroom, but they were supposed to watch. And they came back and said, uh, King Uriah, didn't go home. Didn't go home. How big is this web getting? How many people know what's going on? You know, and it's been said that inside palaces, inside the White House, nothing is done in secret because there's too many people watching everything that goes on. So this whole affair is being known and is probably palace gossip by now. You know, there was palace, palace gossip the first night, and it's really getting juicy gossip for them now. Whether they know that her message back, but now, all right, David's really calling Uriah back home. He's trying to get him to go home. What is going on? And you know the speculation was going on. 
uh, Uriah's wife got pregnant. You know, you know that's what was going on. It, you know, it doesn't say it, but you kind of know. People are talking. Uh, David's called for Uriah. He slept with Uriah's wife. Aha, uh-huh. David's trying to get them to sleep together so he'll think it's his child. And people, well, they're not going to say anything. You know, this is the king that you're speaking against. Uh, the king could say you're speaking treason against him and have you executed. So this is all whispers going on. This will all be whispers going on. And then we look at verse 10. And then it was told David, saying, Uriah went not down to his house. David said unto Uriah, Came you not from your journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Now this is, David seems totally amazed. He does not, it shows where he's at spiritually. At one point in his spiritual life, David probably would have said, I'm going to honor my soldiers in the field and I'm not going to sleep, sleep at home when they're, when they're suffering. But right now he's like, well, I'd go sleep with her if I was home because he's not where he's supposed to be. He's not, he's not being in a righteous frame of mind. And he's a little angry. Now, his plan is not working. And Uriah said, you know, the ark in Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and, and the servants of the Lord are encamped in the open field. Shall I then go into my home and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As the Lord lives and, and as, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Now, I don't know if Joab maybe suspect uh, uh, that Uriah might have had some sur- suspicions on what's going on or if he was just ultimately the righteous man that wasn't going to sleep with his wife or was he hoping that he's wrong and not wanting to take that chance I don't know I I'm going to say that he was a righteous man and not willing to not willing to sleep with his wife because none of the other soldiers were and he would have felt that that would have been a great insult to go back and say yeah hey guys you know yeah I had a really wonderful time I slept with my wife while you were out here in the fields without them (laughs) So I'm going to say that he was very righteous. There are certain commentaries I read that kind of indicated that they think maybe he knew what was going on. He might have had some suspicions because he's been called, but I don't think he did. I think he is just being a righteous man. Verse 12, And David said unto Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morning. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him and made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie in his bed with his servants of his Lord, but went not down to his own house. All right, so David's doubling down on this. All right, Uriah, go ahead and stay one more night. And he calls Uriah to another private time with him. And this time they have a feast and he gets Uriah drunk. All right. And Uriah, even in his drunken stupor, is so honorable he won't go home to lie with his wife. That's why I think he had to be an honorable thing. He was not going to sleep with his wife when his, when his men were out on the field and his, his commander was out on the field. It's like, I am not going to do this. And that's so ingrained to them, even in a drunken stupor, he won't go home. And so David's plan number two has failed. David is now in a sheer panic. <laughs> He's got a, priv- a pregnant wife of one of his friends, or at least comrades. Every trick he's been doing to try to get him to go home and sleep with his wife is not working. And David is now 
going to say, what can I do next? This is what happens when we are go into sin and try to hide it. And it keeps getting deeper. I, I start lying. I start uh, hiding. I start trying to cover it up. And it just gets worse and worse until finally either I am going to confess it or God is going to reveal it. Be sure that your sin will find you out. David's going to think he gets away with it for a period of time. And it's going to look like he got away with it until Nathan shows up a year, well, probably a year and a half later from this point. <laughs> because it's going to be, the child's going to be about a year old when Nathan shows up. A pretty long time for David to be hiding his sin and not being in fellowship with God. Verse 14. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the battle, of the hottest battle, and retire you from him that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass when, Uriah, when Joab observed the city, he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew the, that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought and Joab with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. David decides, okay, I can't get him to lay with his wife. I'll get him killed. Now, David's justifying this. He's not looking at it as murder because he's just arranging for the enemy to kill Uriah. All right? All right, so his weapon was the other, the other army. <laughs> he still killed Uriah. And note that he killed other people in this plan. Uh, and it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Now, many people make a big deal that Uriah did not open this letter. It is not a surprise to me that Uriah didn't open it. He is so righteous, he's not going to lie with his wife. He's got a letter from his king to his commander that's sealed. It's not worth his life. And no matter what he might think or suspect or, or even think is in that letter, he's not going to open that letter. It would, it would be his death if he had opened that letter. So, I mean, I've heard pastors talk about, you know, how he, he carried his hand, you know, he carried his death sentence and didn't even look at it. It's not a surprise to me. You know, not a surprise at all to me that he did not open that letter. And in the letter he said, that David said to Uriah, set Uriah into the hottest, in the forefront, in the very front, at the hottest place of the battle. In other words, I want him dead. Joab understands this, understands this letter. All right? He does not even react to it because David says, put him in the front and then back away from him and let him die. They, Joab does not react to this at all. Why? Well, he's already killed a whole bunch of people himself in cold blood. All right? Joab is not just a soldier. He is a cold-blooded killer because he's already killed. So he's not going to think twice about letting somebody be killed even in battle. And he's justifying it too, just like David. Well, yeah, we put him in the hottest place. We set it up. Uh, if he was really strong, he'd have, he'd have been able to win the battle. Uh, and he's got something on the king, which is probably not a good thing either. Joab is not a very trustworthy man. Jo Joab is a political, we would say political hack in our day. 
you know, gaining, gaining information, gaining, gaining uh, points, gaining blackmail information. <laughs> yeah, he's, and he is using this. He knows what David wants. He doesn't, maybe not, he doesn't know why David wants it at this point. He just knows David has assigned this guy to die, and he's got points against David if it comes down to it. And he may, and he's plan, planning, I can, I can time this just right. If I time this just right, I can be made whatever position he wanted. I can be made second in command to David, you know, or, or the, I can take a duke, duke position or whatever, whatever. He's, he's going to, he plans to use this at some point in the future. And it came to pass as Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew the valiant men were. And these are talking, we believe, the valiant men of the city. All right? He's looking at the strongest place, the place where the, the strongest enemy is at. And he sent Uriah there. And, it came, and the men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. David's murder of Uriah included other men. Now, we only ever talk about Uriah. Uh, the others died theoretically in battle. They might have been sent to that. You know, some men had to have been sent to that battle anyway. Uh, but some people, they should have really avoided that section of the city. They shouldn't have gone that close to the gate to be able to be fought. And so David's offense is not just a single murder. It says some of the men. So that at least two more men in addition to Uriah died. So he's responsible at least for three people's deaths to kill one. To hide his sin. This is how far David's willing to go to hide his sin. Collateral damage. Well, collateral damage. Well, he's, he's doing a lot. He's trying to cover his sin. Uh, somehow David has forgotten that God sees everything. <laughs> and in he has forgotten that there is consequence for sin. And this is something that if we can always keep in the forefront of our mind there's consequence for sin, it may keep us from doing too much sin. But what ends up happening, we start drifting away from God and we forget there's consequence for God. We forget that he sees everything we do. We forget all about God to a degree. Even if we're a Christian, we sometimes can forget about God. I'm not in his word. I'm not going to church. I'm not praying. Uh, Theoretically, at that point in time, I'm an atheist. Not completely, but I'm living like an atheist. God's not seen. I don't care what God says. I'm going to go do what I want to do. And David's at that point. I'm going to do what I... I'm king. I can do what I want. I want this woman. She's pregnant. I've got to get rid of her husband to have her. And he's willing to do whatever it takes to get rid of her husband. Terrible place. Verse 18. Then Joab sent to David, sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, And when you had made an end of the, end of the telling of the matter of the war unto the king, and if so be that the king's wrath arise, and say unto them, Wherefore approach and he says unto you, Wherefore approach you so nigh into the city when and you did fight, knew you not that they would shoot from the wall? Who smote Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheph? Did not a woman cast a piece of millstone upon him from the wall, and he died in Tibes? Why went you nigh to the wall? Then you are to say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. All right. So now we're going to have another, per another person 
involved in this whole thing. We already have several servants. We have Bathsheba. We have uh, Joab. And now we're going to have another servant. This servant doesn't, isn't very in, implicit. He's just doing what he's told. He doesn't really understand the significance of this message, I don't think. Yeah, if he gossips with everybody, he may get to get a feel for this. And Joab sent a message. He's given him the, the, the daily report, the weekly report, whatever, whatever report it is. He's sending this, and he's sending it this time by a messenger. And he says, charges the messenger, if David gets angry with you, because David's going to say, going to come up with, why were you so close to the city in the first place? David's a general. You know, the report is that we lost, we lost however many lives, at least three. We lost several lives because we came up on, on the wall where the battle was fierce. All right? And Joab's not absolutely sure if David's going to remember that he told him to go there or not. But, he, but he's got his message prepared. Just in case the, the, the king, the general of the army, gets mad at him for doing something really stupid and killing and costing soldiers' lives, he's going to remind David. He's going to remind David. Uh, he says, you know, if you write, therefore will approach you so nigh to the city. Right? And Joab knows his Bible. Because he's going, you know, did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech? Now, to remember who Abimelech is, you have to go back to Judges 9. And Abimelech was one of the chief warriors, and he was outside the city, and a woman dropped a millstone on him. And that was how he was killed. Uh, so Joab was saying, if he, if he gets angry and he remembers the story as well as I do, and asks, why were you so close to this city, and didn't you know that this one happens? Joab, at this point, we know that Joab was, understood what he was supposed to do. He understood that he was supposed to make sure that, Joab, uh, that Uriah died. And he was a willing participant in this death. David now has committed two capital offenses. He has committed adultery. He has committed murder. Joab now has committed murder. We have three people that are supposed to die in this story. None of them die. None of them die. <laughs> well, one because of sin and then for covering up the sin. How much calamity happens because of sin? And sin always expands. <laughs> We have consequence, and it always costs more than we expected it to cost. David was thinking, I'm just going to have a good night with a beautiful woman. Yeah, she's married, but I'm just going to have a good night with her. Now she's pregnant. Her husband's not out of the battlefield, and he can't get him to sleep with her, to think that it's his child. And now he's done all kinds of things. He's lied. He's tried to get a man drunk, which is also against the... Against the uh, law and God, you do not get somebody drunk. So he's got the guy, he's committed adultery, he's false pretenses, he's lied to Uriah, he's got Uriah drunk, uh, and you know, he's committing murder. Down the stretch we go. And he's going to think he gets away with it at first. What a problem that's out there. And Joab is not the innocent flower on this either. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he has done. He knows that he has been the, the, the weapon involved in getting this murder done. He plans on using it against David. I know he does. I know he's planning to use it against David or at least hold it over David's head. 
He's never going to be relieved as general because he has this, this thing over David's head. Uh, and we know because David, when he gives his commands to Solomon, he says, get rid of Joab. He's a, he is not to be trusted. Uh, which tells us that Joab probably went to David more than once and said, you know, David, uh, I want something. No, you can't have it. Well, you know, David, I know about the murder and I know about you, uh, Bathsheba. Uh, I can talk. <laughs> and he was a mighty general. David would have had a hard time taking him out. It would, David might have won, but it would have been an interesting battle between two top warriors going against each other. Uh, and then he'd have to explain why he was battling his general. Uh, so the messenger in verse 22 went and came in and showed David all that Joab had sent him. And the messenger sent him to, said unto David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out unto us in the field, and we were upon them even unto the entering of the gate. And the shooters shot from off the wall, and your servant upon your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now this servant didn't even wait for David to get angry. Which tells us he kind of understood that his message was a little more different from the normal message. I don't think his message usually included a list of the dead people to the king. Now he probably had a list of the dead to go, to go and notify the widows, but not necessarily gone to going to the king. This is a special message. This is outside the norm. So he understands that David needs to know that Uriah is dead. And there may have been an anger in there that, we, that isn't recorded. But it jumps right in there, and some of your servants are dead, and by the way, Uriah is dead. <laughs> All right? And verse 25, And David said unto the messenger, Thus shall you say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage you him. So David's saying, you just tell Joab I'm not, you know, things happen in battle. You know, it's, it's the fortunes of war. All right? And that's basically what he's saying. Here's the fortunes of war. People die. You know, um, Joab is going to understand that he did what David wanted. This messenger probably doesn't fully understand it. He's just, okay, fortunes of war. You know, I'm not quite sure why Joab wanted me to give this message to David, and I'm not sure why David is so easy, because they all know that Uriah is one of the valiant men of David. So this is a big deal. And he, when he gives the message, he might have been thinking, you know, this is just for David to know that one of his, one of his big, you know, main men is dead. The messenger's innocent, as far as I can tell. You know, and tell David, Uriah, his servant, is dead. And he's thinking, oh, yeah, Uriah, he's one of, the, he's one of David's mighty men. And so he's not thinking anything about the fact. And David is saying, oh, it's a fortune of war. Yeah. Uh, and when the wife of Uriah, verse 26, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her into his house. And she became his wife and, and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So it says that Bathsheba hears that Uriah is dead and she goes into mourning. The period of mourning, in, according to 1 Samuel 31, 13, is seven days. So she goes into mourning for her husband. And David doesn't wait. As soon as she's done, 
he brings her in to be his wife because he wants to lay claim. You know, this is because at this point we're talking five, uh, four, five, six weeks since she's become pregnant. Going much longer, people are going to do the math. At this point, might get away with it. <laughs> might get away with it. It's close enough, close enough that nobody's really going to do the math and get it, and get the numbers other than all the court, all other than all the court gossip going on. Uh, and I'm sure he slept with her his first night to just justify that it's my, my child. And, and it's, uh, but it says that she became his wife. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. She doesn't seem to be too upset to lose Uriah. She's getting, she's getting rid of a soldier and getting a king. Uh, and apparently, they both like each other quite a bit for this to not be a problem. And we're going to find out later on that she actually is one of David's favored wives. She, he actually chooses one of her children to be the next king. And he is not the oldest of David's children by far. Remember, we've got about eight children already before Bathsheba even enters the picture. And so David is not going to pick one of those as his child and you know he's got some women that he kind of loves. He's got Michael, who he fell in love with, who's one of his who was his first wife. He's got uh, Abigail, which he married after uh, uh, Nabal Nabal uh, died, and he loved her. You know, David's biggest problem is very similar to Solomon's. He sees a beautiful woman and he takes her. Solomon is even worse. <laughs> he takes his dad's desires and makes them multiplied over with three hundred wives and. 700 concubines he literally you know it was very clear that he went down the street saw a beautiful woman and says mine and takes her David at least usually waits until the husband's dead except in the case of Bathsheba uh, and doesn't collect wives quite like a son does but again we see that she is not too opposed to this either and it doesn't we don't know how Uriah treated her we don't know anything about why she is greatly desiring David. Uh, maybe she's feeling that I want David because I don't need to be stoned for, for, for adultery. Uh, she's in a very bad spot too because she's, she's under a death sentence. So at least now she's married to the king. If the king's going to get away with it, I'll get away with it, is, is probably her thinking. At this point, I don't think she's thinking about love or even desire. She's looking out for her own, her own life. Uh, because if she is found pregnant outside of marriage when her husband was at battle, she is subject to a charge of adultery, and then they'll have to find out it was the king. And in the process, the king might lose his life because we don't know how far that could go. And it could easily have gone that far. The, the Bible very clearly in the law tells us that nobody is above God's laws. And it even says this will go from the lowest to the, to the greatest. Nobody was above the laws that God instituted. And if they were to judge correctly, David and Bathsheba are going to die for adultery. David also dies for, for murder. Joab dies for murder. This is a lot of people going to be under capital offenses and face a death sentence, which is why David is so desperate to hide this whole affair. And he brings her in to be his wife, and then that little sentence, but the thing that David did displeased the Lord. The Lord was not blind to this. 
And David doesn't understand that it's displeased the Lord yet. Now, if he thought about it, he'd know, okay, I've committed murder, I've committed adultery, or I've committed adultery, I've committed murder, I've told all kinds of lies. He's going to realize that there's some really serious consequences coming. He is not at a place where he's thinking about the consequences. He thinks he's gotten away with adultery, murder, and all the associated lies, and possibly bribes to keep the palace, palace uh, servants silent, because that's going to cost. It's not something where he's going, well, I can trust these guys. He's going to pay them off. He might even have shipped them off with a great wealth to, out of the kingdom, out of the, out of the palace to keep them silent. Who knows, who knows what he has done, how much he can trust these people, but it's costing him. It's going to cost him money to bribe these people. It's going to cost him lives of a, a life of, of one of his valiant men. It's going to cost him his position with Joab. Joab now has something to hold over his head. It's a trust issue that's going to be an issue here. And, you know, it's one of those things that I look at all the problems from this event. And if David had wanted another wife, God would have said, okay, you can have all the women that you want. You know, you're the king. Go get, go get a virgin. Here is the problem. Sin always gets amplified, always builds upon itself without repentance, without, without confession. And this is why we need to always keep our sins short. When we sin, we need to go before God and say, God, I am sorry, I confess my sin, please forgive me, and get it out in the open and deal with whatever we have to deal with. This was a serious sin. David's really worried. And he really is worried because he theoretically could be stoned for this sin because he took another man's wife. Now he's hoping as king he might get away with it, but still there's a serious, at the very least, reputation that he has now stained. I was God's man. God put me in charge. Now I have messed up my testimony. And a lot of times when we're trying to cover our testimony, we'll do stupid things to try to protect our testimony because we don't want people to know how bad and stupid we really are. But you know, it's very important for us to go to God and say, God, I am sorry if it, if it has to come out and you'll, you'll work together for good for that. And in David's case, it works together for good. He's going to face some pretty severe penalties from it, but God is going to work it together for good. And always true, God works everything together for good. And if David had stopped right from the beginning, who knows what the penalty would have been, but there would have been a penalty. And there would have been consequence. It might have meant his life if he had stopped, stopped at the beginning. I don't know. God did what he did. And, but sin always has consequence. It always has deeper consequence than we expect and gets snowballed when we try to hide it. And eventually, our sin gets trumpeted out. If we do not deal with our sin right up front, God will make sure that people know our sin. If we try to hide it, it will be drawn out. David's is going to be drawn out by Nathan in front of the people, and the entire kingdom is going to know what David did. All of what David did. The sleeping with another man's wife and the murder of that man. If David had repented, we might have just had a little blip. He slept, with, he slept with Bathsheba. And God gave him grace. And that would have been the only thing we ever knew about it. And the nation probably wouldn't really have known about it. David repented. If we repent quickly, 
God will cover because the sin will be placed under the blood and God says it's covered. Now he may still make it known. I mean, Uriah would have had to have known if it hadn't been the murder. I mean, there would have been a number of people that known, but the circle would have been much smaller than it became with all the other trying to hide it. And our sin will always be shown if we don't repent eventually. And how big of it will it be? Whoever needs, whoever is affected by that person's reputation. And that's very important for a, for a father. It might just be their family. The amazing thing is that God treats us and has always treated us of Jesus who died for sins even, bef- even before he died. Because Jesus said yes. He was a lamb slain. And as far as heaven was concerned, he was already slain. Before they even created man, before Adam and Eve fell, the lamb was slain in heaven. What an amazing thing. Jesus, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are outside of time. So as soon as Jesus said yes, God says, okay, their sins are covered. They haven't even made the sin yet, but we're covering them. We're covering their sin. You said yes, you're going to sacrifice to your God. You're not going to change your mind. You will, you will die. And I know you're going to die because you said you will. From that point on, when God looked down at his people, he saw the righteousness of Christ. He saw their sins covered. And all they had to do was trust God to be saved. Trust God to be saved. Now, all, the sin, all, the, all these sacrifices did point to Jesus' death. But God accepted them as a sacrifice, not because they pointed to the death, but because Jesus had already said he was going to die, and God accepted that sacrifice. From the very beginning, before time started, it was already covered. Now, David does not understand that depth of forgiveness. None of the Jews ever understood that depth of forgiveness. Because they didn't know. All they knew is that there was a sacrifice. And they knew that God had some plan. They didn't fully understand it, but they knew that the shedding of the blood covered the sins. They didn't know that it was Messiah's blood that was actually covering the sin, not the lamb that was slain for them. So this is a big deal. David doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't understand God's grace completely. And yet he's about to get a huge dose of grace. Consequences come with that that, that grace. This is one of the two stories that everybody knows about David. And usually this is the one story that everybody knows about David. You know, the other one's Goliath. He killed killed Goliath. And then they know Bathsheba. Because it is a pretty horrible story. And it really does show God's grace. And how much God loved him. Especially the second one when Nathan comes to talk to him. And we're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us and you give us grace. Lord, help us to always remember that you see, you know, and and help us to always remember to confess our sins and to ask for forgiveness quickly. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.